Let's take our Bibles together. We're looking at Revelation chapter 20 this morning. Revelation chapter 20 as we continue through our time through this very interesting, challenging uh, book of the Bible. Um, assuredly, we will be done before Christmas. Uh, that won't be do- too difficult. Um, Thanksgiving Sunday, I, uh, the fo- sorry, the, the Sunday following Thanksgiving, I, I'll uh, leave uh, Revelation aside for a bit. Um, and uh, we'll probably look at some Advent themes and probably pick up the... Actually, I just said we'd finish this before Christmas, but I'm not entirely sure that's entirely possible. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Anyway, this morning, Revelation chapter 20. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God. Would you join me in praying, asking for the Lord's help? Father, we... uh, we need your help, that's clear. That's always the case, even when passages of your word are, are more readily understandable to us. Uh, we need the illumination from your spirit. Lord, that's a supernatural work that we're asking to happen in this room, so we need your voice above mine. Um, and God, I want to be faithful to proclaim what, what is uh, helpful for your people. Lord, I understand that, um, that I'm weak in this matter. I cannot accomplish anything of eternal uh, value, but you will, and it's because your word is living and active. So we're counting on that, Father. Please, by your Holy Spirit, cause our hearts to be uh, pliable, receptive to what you have to say. And uh, Father, would you direct my mouth, my thoughts, even as I proclaim. Lord, we all need to be under this word, and we all need to be found uh, in submission to it. So Help us all to that end. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Parents, you've heard the question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Certainly anyone who's ever taken their kids on a lengthy road trip has heard these, of course. And if the destination is a place where they want to go, a trip to relatives or maybe a trip to the ocean, that sense of anticipation, of course, is greatly heightened. They might say, I can't wait to get there. Of course, them saying that changes absolutely nothing at all. They have to wait as long as it takes. But they may be helped by certain milestones, like state, you know, welcome signs, or significant cities along the way, or other markers. 
Well, if you're a true believer in Jesus, you certainly long for Christ's return. You long for that full realization of his kingdom. And I think it's true that a great number of Christians in every generation have considered the present world events that they see and they've said, are we there yet? Well, the Lord Jesus promised at the end of this book, his words, surely I am coming soon. Yet given how much time has passed since this was written down, what I take from that is that what, what he means for us is that we should live each day with this sense of expectation, this sense of longing for the return of Christ. And I think we've been given this book, this, this prophecy, this book of Revelation to help us to endure, to give us some mile markers, if you will, some things to look for. Now we're no, not told how soon it will be, but we're given in this book imagery and symbols to, el- to help us how to endure, to help us how to know how to be faithful and hopeful. Not only that, but we're given a picture of how the kingdom of God will come so that while we wait, while we are waiting, we can echo John, the apostle who wrote this book down, we can echo his response to Jesus' promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And I I believe that's a longing of every believer this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, how does this passage that we read together fit into the rest of Revelation? Now, in the immediate context, I take it that here, chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. So that's the defeat of Satan that we read together. That's, I take it that that's a recap of what's back in chapter 19. So it'd help if you keep your Bible open on your lap. Um, that's a recap, I take it, of, of chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. There, Christ makes war on the beast and the false prophet. So what, what's depicted there is the end. That's the return of Christ. That is the consummation of his eternal kingdom. Now in verse 1, where John says, then I saw, uh, the way I take it, that this need not be chronological in history, but something that he is shown next. He was shown this thing, then I saw this. And that's how I take it here. I believe that the first part of chapter 20 that we read together, verses 1 through 6, this so-called millennium, I believe it precedes that. Now, I said this last week in our Q&A session, and if, uh, if you missed that, I uh, encourage you to, to, um, to take that in. Uh, the major interpretive schools as regards the matter of the end times, eschatology, they take their name from the meaning, from the timing, from the purpose and place in history of this very chapter in the Bible, Revelation 20. And I just put it out there as I shared last week. I understand that this thousand years, this millennium, I take it to symbolize the entirety of the period of history since the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so, since we know that Christ has not yet returned, I take it that we are in it now. This is our time. So, I'm going to give you my outline for where I'm going with this message this morning. And here it is. Satan is bound because Christ reigns, assuring the end of evil. Let me say that again. Satan is bound because Christ reigns, assuring the end of evil. That's one sentence, three points. Um, Like I said, as we go through this, it'll probably help you if you keep your Bible open in front of you. First of all, let's get to this. The first part of that. Satan is bound. Now, as a resident of this, this great nation, I can say I'm free. I'm not a citizen, but I feel the freedom of it. And I know this, Americans cherish the freedom. It's a value, of course, enshrined in the the Declaration of Independence, and it's understood to be something bestowed upon us by God. But we all know that that liberty has limitations. There are boundaries, right? 
Now, if, if the fictional depictions of frontier life before the nation was, was constituted are true, if those are true, I think they are, then you can certainly imagine a very different world where each man was his own law. That's often depicted in the Western films and stories. But with the Constitution, with the authoritative words around those and the eventual take, uh, the, 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 the realization of that through the nation, initially the colonies and as the nation expanded, those authoritative words, the Constitution, now for our collective good, under them we are bound. We are bound. These laws control my behavior and yours. Now, if, an, if I'm an outlaw, I hate it. It feels like a prison. It feels like I don't have the same freedom I had. But if I value the law, then I regard it as good. I say that because before Christ was revealed, the gospel was veiled. The good news that God was giving to his people, it was veiled. The, the Satan, the outlaw, had deceived the nations into rejecting the true and living God. He had deceived them into embracing false gods. And if you look back in your Old Testament, you know that the, the recipients of God's blessing were limited to this ethnic group these physical descendants of Abraham. Now, like the imagery in Revelation, I, I think the language here in this chapter is hyperbolic. But now, with a new word, with the word of Christ, Satan has been bound. He's been put into an abyss. And as a result, the nations can turn to the true and living God through Christ. So verse 1. Verse 1, John sees an angel coming down from heaven. And I take it, this, this is just meant to depict that this is God's initiative. He's coming from the throne of God. He's coming down from heaven. And he's carrying out a specific divine plan. And what does he have? He has a key to the bottomless pit. That key, I take it, is symbolic of authority over something. Now, we saw a key prior in, in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 18, where there, the, the, the key of death and Hades, the Lord Christ has that. Back in chapter 9, verse 1, again, there another occasion where the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit was mentioned. It's an authority over this realm. That bottomless pit, I take it, is not a geographical location, but really a spiritual reality. The key, the chain, that's the Lord's authority over the realm of evil. That's how I understand this. And I take it that Satan has only as much rope as God chooses to give him. Now, how long is Satan bound? Now, as I shared last week, I, I take it that this, like other aspects of John's vision, contains highly symbolic language. And I, as I've said, uh, moving along, I think Revelation, in Revelation, numbers that are used are highly symbolic. And, and 10 is the number of completion, at least in the human realm. And we get that, right? We, we feel complete if you've got 10 fingers, 10 toes, right? That makes sense. It's a number of human completion. And when 10 is cubed, I think it communicates that this is something ultimate. So 1,000, the millennium, really is symbolic not only of a very long period of time, but of completed time in a human sense. It's a completed human time, indicating then as a result of that some finality. It's, it's the end of it. It's the whole thing right up into the end. Now, again, when is Satan bound? I believe it began with the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So, in what sense is Satan bound? And here, I understand the challenges of interpreting this. And I take it that this is not an absolute binding, but again, highly symbolic language in, in Revelation. This is not an absolute binding of Satan suggesting his complete demise. I know it says he's shot, he's sealed, but I take it that being figurative. Because we know in Peter's first epistle that, that he says this, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the reality is that we know that God has also providentially enfolded 
the evil works of Satan, the things that he provokes in the world through his willing slaves, God unfolds that somehow to accomplish a greater good in our individual lives, but also for his grand purposes. So we know that God controls the, the extent, God controls the immediate effect, God controls the ultimate outcome of every evil act. And this is exemplified in, in the Old Testament. Joseph, uh, the son of the patriarch Jacob, when his brothers had sold him into slavery and after that long period of time where he finally is reacquainted with them, they don't recognize him. But he tells them after he reveals himself and they're feeling like, well, we did, we did evil and they're, they're feeling bad and now he's in a place of authority. He could, he could kill them as second in command in Egypt. But, but, but Joseph understands what's gone on. He says to them, you meant evil against me. That was your intent. But providentially, above it all, God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That providential control of evil by God so as to employ God's purposes now extends to all people. Paul says, and this is often quoted in Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now notice, all things, it's not all things we like, all things that we think are good, all things. All things includes, or should say, excludes nothing. All things includes the evil acts done by nations against nations. All things includes theft, murder, abuse of other people against you. All things includes mine and your own stupidity. All things, all things for good. For those who are called, right? According to the purposes of God, all things. So God has enfolded evil and in some sense, he takes the stuff that Satan does and he says, well, I'm using that too. The selective binding of Satan here, I take it, has a particular purpose and we're told in the text, so that. So why bind him? So that he might not deceive the, the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, the nations. I think that word is important. Uh, in Greek, that's ethnos. Hebrew, goy, goyim. The word is often used in the Bible to, to refer to those who are not, who are not considered the people of God. So, so if you look back in the Old Testament, with very few notable exceptions, like Rahab and Ruth, the promise that was made to Abraham, if you'll recall, that promise said, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. That could not be fully realized until the offspring, Abraham's offspring, referring to Christ, that could not be fully realized until that offspring was revealed. Until Christ, only ethnic Israelites would ultimately benefit from God's promises. The nations, and we just look at our Old Testament, right? The nations had been deceived into idolatry. Whether it's the Philistines, the Chaldeans, they all have their, their various false gods that they bow down to. And even when in some respects they acknowledge the God of Israel, they just think he's one among a pantheon of many gods competing for supremacy. They're idolaters. They don't believe in the true and living God. When Christ was raised, though, Satan was then prevented from deceiving the nations any longer. And I take it that the good news of Christ, I take it that that has a binding power on the reach of evil so that everyone, every person from every nation who would look to Christ in faith, everyone could become part of the people of God. That promise to Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and gathered in to the one people of God. The accomplished there, and accomplished there, thus, as it says in Ephesians 2, creating in himself one new man in place of the two, no more Jew-Gentile distinction, one new man making peace. The fact of Jesus' resurrection from the grave then paired 
with the work of the Holy Spirit, and Phil talked about that in the Acts class this morning, what that did was ensure that those people who had been living in darkness, the deceived nations, would be brought into the light, the light of, of glorious welcome into the eternal family of God. This is what Jesus promised disciples in that regard. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And that witness will go to the nations. The, the Apostle Paul so simply stated this to his non I would say primarily non-Jewish audience in, in Galatians. He says, if you are Christ's, this has got to be shocking to a Jew, but to a Gentile, he's saying, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. And using language that before Christ could have only applied exclusively to Israelites, Peter the Apostle included all people by saying this. He said, but you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ever since Christ was raised, the good news about him, the gospel, the message about, about how people, regardless of heritage, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of all of that, how people might be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, that message has made its way around the world, and that continues to this day. Praise God, and we heard about that. We hear about that every week when we pray for our missionary partners in other parts of the world. So the gospel is truly the power of God to bind the evil one for the salvation of everyone who believes, whether that individual is Jew or Gentile by birth. And that ultimately fulfilled the promise embedded in the curse to the serpent about the seed of the woman Lord says, you, you'll bruise his heel, but he'll bruise your head. Every time the gospel goes out, the head of the serpent is bruised. And a fatal blow is coming, but he's being crushed progressively every time the gospel is proclaimed. Now, if you're a child of God today, it is because... It is because Jesus shackled Satan through Christ. He shackled him. He put him in chains for your sake. Now, I know, yeah, Satan tempts. He, he blinds many. We know that to be true. But that chain, like a leash that has a limit, that bind prevented Satan from blinding you. And because God chose you, he determined to save you, and he did. And nothing or no one can ever take that away. And so that means that we can expect the gospel, we can expect the gospel to land on fertile hearts because of Christ, because Satan is bound. So what do we do with that? Let's, let's honor Christ the Lord. Let's recognize his holiness Let's be ready to engage with those around us in a gentle and respectful way to make a defense to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that we have. 1 Peter 3.15. And what is that hope? What is that hope? Well, many of you believe it, but I don't want to leave this out. That hope that we have is that Jesus is the Christ, the one promised in Scripture. He is the Son of the living God. He is the anointed one. He came to this earth in humility. He lived his life in total perfection. He died. He rose again. He died for a purpose. He died so that before God the Father, all of the sin of all who would look to him in faith might be forgiven in one single act 
which is a heinous crime in one sense to kill the Son of God, but a glorious gift of grace to see that in Him all your sins are forgiven and you can stand before God declared righteous in His sight. That's our hope. And for all who have experienced that forgiveness, we long for the day of his return. And let me ask you, I, it's my prayer that that's your hope. But it is not at present. I pray that you'll settle that matter today. Well, as we continue, Satan is bound because Christ reigns. Because Christ reigns. Now, I don't use... Uh, the social media platform now called X, uh, but I'm not oblivious to its ubiquity. When Elon Musk took over what was at that time called Twitter, when he took that over, things began to change quickly. I mean, I followed this in the news. It was fascinating. Thousands of what he deemed to be unnecessary workers were laid off. Many biased information controls were removed. Now, That'll happen because Musk earned the right. He earned the authority to do so by buying the company. And that's obvious. Though there was much complaining about it, I guess. But he right, that's his company. He can do what he wants. Now I say that because in, in, in a much greater sense, Christ earned his right to reign over all creation. And he bought that right. He bought it through his death and resurrection. And with his death and resurrection, things began to change. Now, my first point that I made, that, that Satan has been bound, it acknowledges that he is not absolutely restricted or eliminated. In some sense, he is still, the Apostle Paul says, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But really, who is truly in charge? Who keeps Satan on a leash? Who truly reigns? Well, according to verses 4 through 6 of our text, Christ reigns now. And I want to I show you why I think that is the case from other parts of Scripture. So we'll take a kind of a, a quick tour through some other passages of Scripture in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, I, I said this, uh, I, I referred to the difficulty of the interpretation of this passage. And, and again, like, like I said, I have to refer you back to last week's Sunday School Q&A. But essential here is why I believe that the New Testament speaks of only a single people of God, which is all who are in Christ by faith. And I'm, I'm really coming from the assumption as to why I don't believe John sees a future post-rapture earthly kingdom of only Jews where this is fulfilled. So that's, that's the baseline. And whether you take a, a different view, uh, you're entitled to do that. Among our elder team, we have differing views. But I'm preaching this how I see it. But the application I think we can agree on, and, and there's some glorious things here that we can certainly agree on. In chapter 19, Christ there has the name on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this has always been true about the Lord Jesus Christ. It has always been true. But in some sense, he earned the right of that recognition by his humiliation by his vicarious death, which is to say in our place, and by his resurrection. In explaining all that, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says this. So he talks about imitating Christ's humility. Though he's in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to, to hold on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then right after that, it says this. The Apostle Paul says, therefore... Now, you could say, because of this, or in light of that, or with a view to this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, God has given him a name that is above every name. So, therefore, the result of all of this, his humiliation, is that every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. 
So what, what I'm saying here, and I think what we're being shown, what is a reality in terms of Christ's reign here, is Christ earned this right to reign by disarming and deposing Satan. And that project began as soon as Jesus appeared on the scene. And we see this at the beginning of the gospel. Mark's gospel records the very first thing that Jesus did after his baptism. Now, he was, he was in the wilderness for 40 days. And there he was tempted by Satan. It's often taught and preached. It's a common story. It's a feature of the gospels, right? But how, and this is the question that I think is important, and it's germane to our discussion. How did Satan tempt Jesus? And, and one of the three ways was this. And I'll, it says this in Matthew 4. Jesus, or sorry, Satan took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. I just quoted Matthew and I mentioned Mark, but it's, it's, it's a feature of all of the gospels, certainly the synoptics. So how did Satan tempt him? He said, showed him the kingdoms, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, Satan had no right to this, but he believed he ruled the world. He, he usurped it through deception. And we know the story back in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam abdicated his rule. He had a place as vice regent over creation, but then, then he believed the serpent's lie, right? Now, here in this temptation, of course, Jesus resisted Satan's wiles, and it's important to understand that that resistance, in that resistance, it was decisive about something. See, right there, I, I take it that Jesus clipped Satan's wings, as it were. He put a chain on him. He bound him. Jesus began to assert his own rightful place as king. Now back to Mark. So he began to preach the gospel, and when he did, he declared this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's about him. Without saying it, I'm here, Jesus is saying. You want to understand the kingdom? Look to me. My paraphrase, but that's effectively what he's saying. And you need to repent. Jesus is saying, look, this doesn't belong to Satan. He just stared him down over a challenge for Satan to give him all the kingdoms of the world. Well, it was never his to give him. Jesus asserted his own kingship. This doesn't belong to Satan. This is mine. Now, behind that gospel declaration, behind the good news that, that Christ was crucified for sin and then rose again, guaranteeing eternal life for all who believe, behind that, it's the truth that Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God's king. And he proved it through the gospels. He proved that kingship again and again in successive acts during his earthly ministry. And that worked to depose Satan, who was an interloper. Now, I take it that the main objective of the gospel writers is, or at least one main objective, is to certainly establish that Jesus is the Christ. That is to say, God's anointed king over his people. But, but listen, and I'm saying it's successive acts. Hear this in his, in his words. When he cast out demons, Jesus said this, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Satan's minions, his demons, Jesus is saying, get lost. And they go. That means the kingdom of God is upon you. And Jesus is saying, I'm the kingdom's king. Another occasion, he sent out 72 emissaries ahead of him. And when they came back to him, they joyfully marveled at how the demons were subject to him, subject to them in the name of Christ. And Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And anticipating what he would accomplish by drawing people to himself through his vicarious death, Jesus said this. Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Do you see where this is going? Jesus prepared this way. Jesus was taking back authority over his kingdom. He was beginning to reign. And the apostles picked this up too. Looking back on what Christ accomplished at the cross, the Apostle Paul encouraged the Colossians with his very same truth about what Christ accomplished there. He says this in Colossians 2, 15, referring to what Jesus did. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So through this humiliation of the cross, Christ reestablished his authority and that authority began in the hearts of his own people in anticipation, in anticipation of when that rule would ultimately be acknowledged by all in the consummation of his eternal kingdom by every tongue, every tongue, every knee, every tongue confessing, every knee bowing. Now, as we turn back to Revelation 20 and the present reign of Christ, here's what John sees. He sees thrones upon which are seated those to whom authority to judge was committed. Now here's some more Old Testament allusions, prophetic allusions. This I take it refers to Daniel 9 and 10. You can look back there where this, where you see this court of judgment and the opening of books revealing the records of the deeds of all men. But there in this, in this scene, John sees along with Christ those who have died in faith. And he mentions these martyrs, the ones who were beheaded, those who had not received the mark of the beast or worshipped his image. And so that really uh, is everyone who died in faith, trusting Christ. So I take it here that what we're being shown is that this first resurrection is a spiritual one. I think these are the souls that John saw in the fifth seal, those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They're the ones who are crying out to the Lord for justice. That's Revelation 6, 9 and 10. And they're truly blessed because they have no fear of the second death, that lake of fire, verse 10. And why? Why do they have no fear? Because the wrath of God was already poured out in Christ for their sin. And here they are. They're shown to reign with Christ, right? And they reign with him forever and they do so because they are in christ that is to say they have already been raised with christ in the in the language of of uh, the apostle paul in colossians 3 they've been raised with christ their lives like all who've trusted in him are hidden with christ in god these are the ones that will experience the second resurrection at that time when this perishable body, as the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, must put on the imperishable. This immortal body must put on immortality. So, Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, he reigns now, and with him are believing loved ones who have died. Believing people from every generation who have died, faithful saints who have put their hope in God, and though they are away from the body, they are at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. And for us, we who are here and still are in our mortal bodies, knowing that we have been made alive in him, we have the confidence that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That's Hebrews 12.1. And they're cheering us on because Satan has been bound by the reign of Christ, by, by Christ making it possible for his gospel to go forth. And that gospel will be believed by those that God has determined to save. Christ reigns now. We acknowledge it here, brothers and sisters. That's why we're here together this morning because we acknowledge the reign of Christ. We know that Jesus has the key to death and Hades. We know that he has the key to the bottomless pit. He has the authority over all things, including the extent and reach of evil. All of that is firmly in his hand. And because he reigns now, this has to do with why we gather. Because he reigns now, he has given to us keys of the kingdom. Matthew 16. And with that authority, what do we do? 
We, the ones who publicly identify with him, we who bear his name, his mark, what do we do? We proclaim Christ as the kingdom's king. That's what we're doing this morning. We're proclaiming Christ as the kingdom's king, and we are urging any and all to, her, to turn to him in faith as we look forward to his return. So because Christ reigns, let us continue to gather in confidence of Jesus' authority over all things. Let's continue to stand on the word of Christ. Let's continue to stand on the good news which is the binding power over Satan for the salvation of everyone who believes. Well, Satan is bound because Christ reigns, then assuring the end of all evil. Uh, in Josh's prayer, he mentioned this, and I think this was a sentiment, but I, I do hate cancer. Every time I hear the word, I... I hear of someone being diagnosed. I, I have this kind of visceral reaction. I, I hate it. I think maybe that's partly because cancer took my own father. And I do have this rational, admittedly, a rational fear of it myself. Now, in my mind, of course, I know that God is sovereign. He allows it. And he's doing some ultimate good in it. But I still hate the disease. And I know it's a, a consequence of the fall of man. And because God will take it away in the new heavens and the new earth, I think he hates it too. He wouldn't let it remain. If he, if he didn't hate it, it would remain, right? But he hates it, so it's, it'll be gone. I'm grateful to God for medical advances, chemotherapy, all of that, radiation surgeries that eradicate the disease. And I know some here are living with it, and some have survived it. But I think I'm on safe ground to declare that no one on the face of the earth would be sad if cancer was vanquished for good. No one would be sad. In a greater sense, sin is a cancer on creation. It's a hideous virus, and the source of that hideous virus is Satan himself. And from our text, we can be absolutely assured that because Christ reigns, Satan, sin, and all who remain corrupted by it will be vanquished. Verse 7 tells us how this will happen. At the end of this long period of time, this millennium, Satan will be released from his prison. The, the bonds will be removed. The shackles will be taken off. He'll come out of that figurative bottomless pit. No restraint. Verse 8, and in a very short time, this is a little while, verse 3 again, what Satan's going to do, he's going to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. He's going to deceive them. And again, these nations are comprised of people who allied themselves with Babylon, what they have done is they take, they've taken the mark of the beast. All of this is in God's scheme. Now at this point, what John does is he draws on these prophetic images from Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog, that, that final battle where all the nations are gathered together against the people of God. This unified army of the nations, it's really a horde, as it says in the text, like the sand of the sea, that's verse 8. All of this under the influence of Satan, what they do is they turn their murderous attentions against the camp of the saints. I say that's the church, those set apart by the Lord. But at that moment where Satan would seek to harm them, and if we are alive and remained at that time, us, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now I take it that again, I mentioned this earlier, there's a recapitulation I think of, of chapter 19, verse 17 and 18, where the angel calls for the birds then to come and gather for this great supper of God to eat the flesh of all who have made war on Christ and his people. And so it's kings, captains, mighty men, all slave men, all men slave free, high and low, everybody all who have taken the mark of the beast, all who are not marked by Christ. And they are slain by the one who is called faithful and true. They are slain by the word of God. They are slain by the king of kings and lord of lords, Christ himself. Now with this colossal defeat, Satan is then thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet. And we're told that's where they already are. In the last part of the vision, that's what John saw. So this holy trinity is, I'm sorry, this unholy trinity. I had mentioned before that Satan is a counterfeit. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he counterfeits Satan, Babylon, and the false prophet. It's his unholy trinity. They are no more. They're, and they're where they're destined to go since the beginning of creation. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This 
unleashing of Satan is what leads to his demise. He's unleashed, and evil so consumes him to deceive all the nations, the word of Christ, the fire from heaven, he is obliterated and cast into the eternal lake of fire. And this agrees very much with, with what Daniel saw in his vision. If we look back at Daniel 12, and I can just read this here, and you can see the similarities. And there shall be a time of trouble. That's when Satan's unleashed. Such has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And here it is. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt everlasting shame and contempt that's the souls of the spiritually dead that's all those a host of people who have rejected the rule of God people from every nation who have refused to humble themselves and receive the forgiveness available in Christ refuse to bow the knee and honor him as Lord and they are raised bodily to be judged. They're raised from the graves, from the sea. And what John sees here in verse 11 is this great white throne implying this, this absolute purity and righteousness of God. And everyone, everyone, great and small, standing before it. And because this is such a, 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 a stunning, pure awesome, holy moment. The earth and the sky flee from his presence. And I take it that this is somewhat preparation for a new heavens and new earth, but that we'll see that. But at this moment, these books are opened. And again, that alludes to Daniel 7. These books, Daniel 12 as well. And in these books, the deeds of everyone are opened. Now that would be absolutely horrifying. That would be absolutely horrifying to all of us. Except there's another book. There's a glorious book. It's the book of life. It's the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain. The lamb that was slain holds this book. And in that book are the names of all those he died for proven by the fact that they looked to him in faith, worked out in their lives where they said, Jesus, you're my king, you're my sovereign, you're my Lord, I follow you, I trust you, I obey you. It's a glorious book. Because apart from that book, our deeds would condemn us. But as those sins are are enumerated before all creation. And I don't know how it's going to go, but I imagine Jesus going, well, that, that one's mine. Don't worry about it. I got that covered. <laughs> I mean, that sounds flippant. It's more like, yes, but I died. Yes, but I took God's wrath. That one's mine. Everyone will be judged by the first books for their deeds. But again, for the ones whose names have been written in the book of life, and I trust that that's you today, your deeds have already been paid for by the Lamb who was slain. And so the second death will have no power. No power. Now I take it. I take it that the first death and that power of that first death is ultimately prefigured in the Apostle Paul's explanation of the trajectory of evil in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And if you're familiar with that passage, God handed them over. They refused to acknowledge God. They refused to give him thanks. That will be summed up. The, the full outworking of God handing them over will be what we see in terms of the lake of fire. That second death, that's the logical outworking of evil. It's God giving to the rebellious exactly what they want. Hell, the lake of fire, will be exactly what people said they want when they said they rejected God. I don't want you to rule me. I've got it, thank you very much. When God takes his hands off, it can't be anything but hell. 
Because when his hands are around you, it is mercy, it is grace, it is a welcome. But if he takes his hands off and he releases you to your own sinful desires, you will be consumed with the consequence of your own sin. Nobody from hell, I'm confident, will say to God, I didn't know. But the good news is, for the redeemed, for all who are in Christ today, submission to the rule of God, that's glorious. It says in in 1 John, God's commands are not burdensome. Thank you, God, for those boundaries. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, for your law. I know what you're like, and I want to be that way. Those commands aren't burdensome. And for those who have embraced Christ, for those who have submitted themselves and humbled themselves before the Lord, while those who have rejected him will be experiencing exponentially and ever-increasing torment, for all who are in Christ, and I hope that's all of you this morning, I pray that it is, it will be never-ending, exponentially increasing joy in his presence. Now that's the end. Christ reigns now. And what that means is Satan is bound. And we can look forward to the end of all evil. So what are we called to do? Between now and that time, with that knowledge, Satan is bound, Christ reigns, the gospel will go out. Well, we gotta keep looking to Christ. Simple application this morning, not too profound, but, it, but it's what Revelation, I think, has been given to us for. And I'll just quote to you from Revelation 14, 12 and be done. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. May that be all of us. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that victory is already assured and we have it painted out for us here in this book. It'll be a glorious day. But Father, until that day, uh, keep us faithful. We want to endure. We want to represent you well in this world. We want to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in us. So strengthen us for that. And we look forward to the day, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus, before whom every knee will bow, before whom every tongue will confess, all to your glory, our God and Father. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus.